Hi, my name's Tim. And I'm Cassandra. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the European, European Soapbox. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about Brexit. Um, following the theme of our last few episodes, we're sort of getting into the modern day EU and talking about modern challenges. So we've talked about the Euro crisis, the refugee crisis, and today we're going to be talking about Brexit. Um, we're specifically going to look at it from sort of an EU perspective. What did the EU lose? Um, and then, then we'll look at it from the UK perspective. What challenges are there to the UK? And then we'll relate it back to this big idea of globalization and disintegration. Yeah, so a lot of our information is specific to the implications of it, what it means for the Schengen area. Um, I, I think the biggest thing, in my opinion, would be, or I guess in my limited experience, is the movement of people. Like, you can no longer just take a flight into the EU and it'd be fine. Like, you now need a visa, and there's so many other things that are still being messy and complicated. A ton of nuance, and, and we'll talk about that. I just recently wrote a paper about Brexit. Yes, so you are definitely the expert in this area um, right now. I don't know if I call myself an expert, but I, I, I will try. I will try. Okay, so basic framework. There was a referendum in 2016. It was a, should we leave the EU or should we stay in the EU? And the results were what? It was very, it was very close. It was, it was really close. I think like 52% or something like mm -hmm. that said leave. Um, and it, what's really interesting is they had pretty low to voter turnout. No, they had high voter turnout. I think like 70%. But still, you think for such a big issue, you would have more. Right, yeah. Um, and so Remain voters were primarily urban centers, um, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. And then Leave voters were sort of rural England, Wales, and okay. a lot of scholars have argued that this doesn't show a rural-urban divide. It shows a winners versus losers of globalization divide. Interesting. Because when you think about London, for example, mm -hmm. like they've clearly benefited from the EU, yeah, from globalization. All the money goes through there. Like these people have great jobs, mm -hmm. multinational firms. Like they they're making making monies. Mm -hmm. Um. And so, whereas the rural farmers, they, they they benefit from the EU, but not tangibly. And so it's a little bit of a misinformation almost of voters, or maybe even a disinformation of voters. That's heavily debated in UK politics. And I would almost argue that it is kind of an urban-rural divide. I mean, I it's something in that I sense, looked yeah. up a little bit for my thesis, but there are significant differences in voter behavior whether you grew up or even moved to one place or the other and i mean i get when it comes to this particular issue the winners and losers of globalization specifically with this it it does matter i think totally i i definitely think it plays a role um i also think it's really interesting how regionally sort of like within the commonwealth mm -hmm. scotland and the northern ireland two places heavily dependent on eu stuff like scotland's fishing industry central to the eu market like scottish salmon very important and then northern ireland because they literally have a border with an eu country right. like it, it's it's really pertinent how these two places that are directly affected are sort of saying like hey 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 
uh, I need some kind of help. Like, it's, it's shocking. One thing that could possibly have influenced the vote is during the time of the referendum, the immigration crisis was happening. And yeah, yeah. And so nationalism totally, yeah, totally yeah. plays a role. Um, which, let, let's talk about that in context of globalization. Uh, along with globalization comes immigration. Mm-hmm. Like, those two things are inherently interlinked. And we've argued on this podcast before that we personally think that the benefits of globalization are beyond the, the consequences or maybe even those consequences are actually positives. Like, we've talked right. about... Um, multi-cultures like Mm -hmm. many cultures like we've said that that's a great thing um and one of the for the eu this is not a unique problem right right i mean there's migration from quite literally everywhere (laughs) yes and the fact that these countries like apart from the uk struggled with ideas like this is too much or we need some kind of halt on this. Like you, you mm-hmm. see Hungary and Poland do it in democratic backsliding ways, and you just see this national sentiment lead to populist leaders, mm-hmm. where in the UK it led them to leave the EU. So I, I think that that's really interesting and indicative of sort of the modern issues the EU has. Yeah, and we'll talk about democratic backsliding in next semester. Um, oh, do we need to give theories? a quick overview? Yeah, I, yeah, sure. Essentially from liberal democracy to illiberal democracy sort of this idea of like a boomerang mm-hmm. you go to liberal you come back to illiberal um liberal is essentially we define it as democratic ideals protection of minorities um and yeah. a strong constitution yeah it's some of the re- prerequisites for even becoming considered for the eu so yeah. it's those are the kinds of things that are, the eu now has to balance does this country still qualify to be in the EU? Do we kick them out? And I don't think there has been a, no, 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 a no. EU country that has been <laughs> kicked out, but it's it's something that with some countries it's more prominent than others. Definitely. Um, okay, returning to Brexit. Mm-hmm. Some of the, the consequences for the EU after the UK leaves is one, they lose a huge market. Mm-hmm. The UK has a huge population. And with context of the EU, it... it Losing a country like this is terrible. It's significant. It's significant. Um, along with that economy. Like, you're yeah. losing an economy. You're mm-hmm. losing the market and not just the people. Mm-hmm. And then I, I I would say that the leadership role the UK had in the EU, while it was small, it was significant. Right. When you think about Margaret Thatcher... And like what she did for the EU and things she blocked and certain things she defined during her period as prime minister, pretty central. Right. And so all of this really came about starting January 1st, 2020. So after years after the referenda actually took place. And there was a lot of internal politics. Yes, there was a lot that happened in those four years. And even does this actually happen January 1st, 2020? But it, it did. Um, and then there was... I believe an 11-month grace period where the UK mm-hmm. would officially figure out how trade was going to work, how the movement of people was going to work, uh, passports. Because I mean, that's a huge thing. You can no longer have an EU passport. You need a UK-specific passport. Um, and I don't know the ins and outs of the right now. I don't know if it's even completely finalized because it's very recent. Answer: It's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so very important to the uk's campaign was saying we could make a better deal 
out of our trade trade deals you know Mm -hmm. we want to decide who we trade with we want to decide where tariffs go we want to have control over like eu markets and they're trying to get a free trade agreement which is what we would consider a soft brexit Mm -hmm. whereas a hard brexit is sort of no free trade agreement that that's essentially as i understand it tariffs and barriers nice (laughs) um and the agreement's sort of on the table, but it's not on the table. There's a lot of argument about it. I feel like, like you said, so the UK was a definitely contributing economic factor, but it is not the biggest. When it compared to the EU, the EU is obviously very large. So and, and that union, it's, it's strong. Yeah. You, can't, you can't break it up just by deciding to leave. Yeah. That's not their goal either. They're, they just want some kind of more control. Yeah, from an outside perspective, perspective, sorry, the UK doesn't have the upper hand no. in this negotiation. <laughs> no. So I don't know where the information is I, was for that, but it's it's odd. It's odd, and a huge point of contention within this free market whatever debate is the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Yeah, it it's not an issue until it's gonna become an issue. Right, it's inevitable. Truly. Well, so so what they have right now is they technically have a soft sea border. Essentially, they're treating the island of Ireland like it's in the EU, even though a country within the island, Ireland, mm-hmm. it's not. Right. <laughs> Northern Ireland isn't in the EU, but still trade barriers, taxes, it all still goes through. And through, there's been a lot of revisions to this, so it's a little more soft, and there's not really a... a taxes tariffs whatever like borders like not no checks or something Mm -hmm. like that so it's sort of like this gray area they're trying to get what what is the the phrase um they're trying to get the best of both worlds best of both yeah sorry (laughs) best bang for your buck there you go and because by not having a border Mm -hmm. they're they're trying but with sort of specifically boris johnson i'm surprised we haven't mentioned his name yet (laughs) Boris Johnson saying, all right, well, I don't really like this trade deal. I'm going to put pressure on the EU. They say, all right, we're going to make you institute some kind of border border in between Ireland and Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. which is bad Yeah. for Boris Johnson and UK politics. Because where do you put the border? Do you put it in the sea? Which then it feels like Northern Ireland isn't part of the UK anymore. Mm-hmm. Or do you put it on the, the land border? reigniting this historical issue where right there was war mm-hmm. that's it's a lose-lose situation it's a, it's a much. terrible situation and it's an issue that if brexit hadn't happened they wouldn't have right which i think it's it's a fundamental argument to, to sort of illustrate what the uk was thinking like what what even was going on did you not think about this border i think the timing of the vote was not like mostly because of the nationalist sentiment that was increasing totally. because of the immigration crisis. Totally. And just to quickly put it out there, so we're throwing around hard Brexit, soft Brexit. So a hard Brexit would have been um, like what we said, if tariffs, barriers, if everything changed, if the UK essentially became its own country that had nothing to do with the EU. Whereas a soft Brexit is, from what I understand, you they separate, but a lot of the things kind of stay the same. I mean, there are some things that obviously would have had to change, like passports regardless, because they're no longer yeah, in the Schengen area. Yeah. But free market, that's, I think that would have been the biggest thing. What I, would you say? 
There's so much nuance to this issue. I still don't yeah. fully understand what a hard Brexit <laughs> is or a soft Brexit is. And honestly, I would argue the UK doesn't really understand it either. <laughs> um, but I, I, I like that definition. And I think that it's a very good illustration of sort of the issues mm-hmm. and the debates that are going on. And let's, let's talk about disintegration. Mm-hmm. When we, we think about the EU, now we have not only European integration, which is countries sort of adopting EU laws to get into the EU or adopting EU policies to become a member. Now we have it the other way around. Right. The process of leaving. And this is monumental because they've had conflicts with countries before. They had a conflict with Denmark, um, sort of excluding Greenland, whatever. Um, (laughs) This is the first time a country has said, you see you later. It's made it official. Yeah. In a tangible, difficult way. I would like to argue that despite their official leaving, I don't think it will prompt other countries to leave. I mean... I fully agree. Okay, so yeah, the Can't EU be. is such a strong political economic entity that I think even seeing how brexit has played out other countries would not be necessarily inclined to do this i i I honestly think that most of europe is in agreement that the uk did the wrong thing yeah which is it's harsh to say but i mean (laughs) that's how it is right and so i i want to sort of give a modern approach to this we're in 2021 and still in the middle of the covid pandemic Mm -hmm. even though it sometimes doesn't feel like it the UK is finally starting to sort of see what Brexit's all about. It's been a year-ish since the grace period has ended. Mm-hmm. Some of the agreements are harsh, like I said, with the trade agreement. And we're starting to pick up, I'm going to call it side effects, of COVID and Brexit. Mm-hmm. And they're really hard to differentiate. But specifically, we have shortages in labor, essential workers. The UK has this huge gap in nurses in the NHS. Just shocking, right? Yeah. Pandemic. You need nurses. <laughs> yeah. The UK was really, not really dependent, but they depended on nurses from Italy, Spain, Romania to, to come and do Help. this. Yeah. They, it's part of their economy. They, they granted all these visas for people to come here and work. Two, truck drivers. It's it's partially contributing the like the furlough scheme, blah blah blah, apprenticeship, mm-hmm. work conditions. But a lot of UK truck drivers or truck drivers driving to the UK were EU citizens. Oh. And so now they went home and they're not coming back. And there's right. certain there's certain things that are at play here. I'm, I'm not saying this is solely responsible to Brexit, but it is partially responsible to Brexit. Yeah. They also have food shortages. I can definitely see that for uh, contributing to both, like COVID and it, yeah, yeah, and it's the the it's almost this not overconsumption, but there's so it's a supply chain chain issue. So the food isn't going to the warehouses because of regulations issues with trade, and the warehouses are almost running empty to provide stuff to the grocery store. And with Christmas coming up, this is an issue. Right. A lot of these seasonal holiday stuffs aren't getting to the stores Mm -hmm. which is really interesting and alarming to the uk um and i the final one is the other way around so uk farmers produce a lot of goods right Mm -hmm. specifically sort of food and agriculture 
and a lot of European shelves are empty with British the place specific. where British products used to be. I mean, I don't know any British specific products, but what do you think? Cadbury eggs, <laughs> um, carrots, potatoes, mincemeat, sausages, stuff like oh, that. Oh, okay. So, like, significant. Yeah. Um, which I, I just find that really interesting. And mm-hmm. it's way too early to tell if these are COVID, COVID or Brexit. But it's it's indicative of something. We just don't know what it is. <laughs> right, yet. right. Um, and it, and in my paper, <laughs> uh, I so nicely argued that uh, this was partially because of Brexit, and a lot of scholars do agree. But overall, the UK leaving the EU hurt them more than it helped them. And I would agree because you you lose access to the single market just by stepping outside of that zone. Regardless of what trade deal you get, it's going to hurt. <laughs> yeah, and it's not going to be the exact same. It's like stepping on a hedgehog. <laughs> like You'll walk. <laughs> you'll walk. It depends on how many what are, pins you get in your foot. What do they have? Spike. Hedgehog. Spike. I don't know any spikes you get in your foot. <laughs> Quills. But it, it, it's still going to hurt. Right. You know, you might, get, you might get lucky and you get one or two. Mm-hmm. But that's still one or two more, more than, than you, you had, had before. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um. And I, I, the Brexit is this unique issue. It's going to be defining for the next 20 years of the EU. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really interesting to see how this almost natural experiment will, plays out. And I think the intersection with COVID, I mean, especially with the new variant, it's, it could go on for a while. I mean, I read that yeah. expert or some researchers say that Omicron might start a new pandemic because of the difference in behavior from this particular variant we like, will we, have no we will idea. see it's it's going to be interesting and i don't know if it's exasperated it the effects of brexit i don't know if it's hidden it i don't know if it's con- made it easier i don't know it'll take a we'll while to, see. to uncover and it's going to be really interesting to see but is it is a modern challenge to the eu and to the uk and to europe in general yeah and so i mean i think we've covered a lot of the very big things and maybe in our future episodes when we talk about this if there are new i guess things that come yeah, up with development Brexit, um it's something else that it's an ongoing pro- or issue that we will definitely touch on in the future and with that we hope you join us next week on the european sandbox The European Soapbox podcast reflects only the opinions of the authors and do not reflect the views of any affiliated and or mentioned organizations. We are students still in the learning process, so information should be taken with a grain of salt and not blindly accepted. The information is for informational purposes only and do not intend to serve as any recommendation. We do not intend to isolate anyone on this podcast and encourage diversity and differences in opinion. The European Soapbox stands independently from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The authors are the sole owners of the rights to the European Soapbox podcast. As students, we ask for the opportunity to grow and improve in our podcasting journey and progression as individuals. If you'd like to reach out to us, send us an email at europeansoapbox at gmail.com. This podcast is hosted by Cassandra Alvarino and Tim Fry. All music is produced by Till Iringer. That's T-I-L-L-Y-D-E-A-N dot W-A-V 
on Instagram. A special thanks to our friends, families, and supporters.